Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Loan speaking, and you're listening to Blue Dot. Welcome to this new episode titled The Oceans and Climate Through Time, where we tackle some big questions that include how did the oceans form? How did all the water get here? How do we have trenches that are deeper than Mount Everest's tall? And what were some turning points and critical events in the development of our oceans? Second, we go over the techniques that are used to study these things because it's not an easy process. And then we dive into some of the more specific work of today's guest, Dr. Howie Schur. Dr. Schur is a geologist and paleoceanographer, meaning that he studies ancient oceans, and he got his Bachelor in Environmental Science at the University of Rochester. He completed his PhD in Geology at the University of Florida, looking at ancient sovereign ocean circulation, which we'll discuss later. Dr. Schur has been a faculty here at the University of South Carolina for 13 years, and his work has been cited in over 2,500 papers. I'm very excited to dive into this episode and have an expert answer our many questions about the evolution of oceans. Dr. Schur, thank you so much for your time and welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So before we look at how all this water got here, I think I should ask which came first, the water or the ocean basins? Well, before the oceans could be in existence, you had to form the deep basins that the water now collects in. Um, so I would say that the that the ocean basins had to form first. Let's dive into how these form. I have two specific things in mind. Number one is the huge oceanic ridges that we see in the ocean. And number two, how the trenches like the Mariana Trench, which is 11,000 meters deep approximately, how, how how did this happen? How do we get the formation of these features? So these are uh, these are great questions. Um, let me start with a little bit of um, human history when it comes to exploration of the oceans. Until the until about 1850, the best scientific minds um, in natural sciences thought that the ocean floor was completely featureless and completely lifeless, and that was called the Azoic theory, and that theory was very quickly um, given up on when the first telegraph cables, undersea telegraph cables that were being strung between uh, the United States and England were recovered. Um, they had Those first cables had broken because they had to go over a large feature in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which nobody knew about, and that turned out to be the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Um, the cables also came up covered and crusted with barnacles. So the two assumptions that scientists had made about the bottom of the ocean were overturned by a um, industrial and um, commercial venture to lay telegraph cables. So ever since 1850, we've been mapping the seafloor, and we've now discovered that this this feature that was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean is a continuous ridge that circles the globe, and it is the most active volcano on the planet. It only pops up above the surface of the ocean in a few places. Iceland is one of them, and we call it the Mid-Ocean Ridge System. 
Okay, so that's super interesting. Um, I, I would have thought that it was the fruit of a scientific effort to find about those uh, Middle Atlantic Ridge. And now that you mentioned the Atlantic Ridge popping up at the surface, can you contrast with that by talking about how we got a deep point like the Mariana Trench, which is over 11,000 meters deep? Sure. So the reason that the Mid-Ocean Ridge is very shallow is because that's where the youngest seafloor is found. Zero-age seafloor is the warmest because it has just been extruded from the mantle, so it floats higher in the layer of Earth that we call the asthenosphere, which supports the lithosphere. Um, and the lithosphere, of course, has an upper layer, which we call the crust. So the youngest portion of the lithosphere is found at the mid-ocean ridge and is shallowest because it's warmest. So contrasting the um, mid-ocean ridge with the deepest portions of the ocean basin, the trenches, the trenches represent the oldest and thus the coldest uh, oceanic lithosphere. Generally, we find these trenches as linear features. Um, sometimes we find them up against continents, like at the uh, Peru-Chile Trench and the Pacific coast of South America. But sometimes we find these trenches in the middle of ocean basins, like in the Western Pacific. And these are zones where old oceanic lithosphere is being recycled back into the earth to provide new material eventually to come back up at the mid-ocean ridge. So it's part of a long cycle um, where the youngest oceanic crust, of course, is zero age. And the oldest oceanic crust that we have on earth today is about 180 million years old. So to sum it up, the ridges are where the new rock is being formed, where plates are pulling apart. And this is where uh, molten rock is rising. And the trenches are where this crust sinks under older plates. That's right. That's the, um, that's the basis of the, the theory of the driving mechanism for what we call plate tectonics. The mantle, we believe mixes by convection, which is a, where the, you have a, um, a heat source deeper in the fluid that causes um, less dense fluid to rise and then cool. And then as it increases its density, the fluid then sinks. And what we believe is that the earth has been cooling by convection for the last 4.55 billion years. And plate tectonics the formation of new oceanic lithosphere at the ridge and the destruction of old oceanic lithosphere at the trenches is a surface artifact of that deep process of convection that we believe is going on. And how many millions of years did that take for the ocean basins to form uh, to approximately what they are like today? Well, you have to remember that the ocean basins are actually the youngest features of our planet. So we really don't know what the first ocean basins look like because they have been long since recycled. But if you use the present as the key to the past, which is one of the central tenets of, of geology, the earliest ocean basins probably looked pretty similar to um, what we have today. It's possible the plate tectonic rates, the rates of seafloor spreading um, were faster because the earth was warmer. So it's possible that the mid-ocean ridge system was a lot shallower 
And it's possible that the ocean basins in turn were shallower. But all of that speculation because we we don't have any uh, we don't have any records of the earliest ocean basin. Got it. So we have these ocean basins that are forming with all this tectonic activity. Now, how did we get this enormous amount of water added to these basins to form the oceans that we see today? So this has been a question that has been addressed by a lot of different fields, um, ranging from geochemistry to um, astronomy, because the the potential sources of water in the solar system or in our in, the, in our portion of the galaxy include comets, but they also include sources inside of the Earth. Uh, for a long time, scientists looked at all of the tiny little micro uh, impacts that were being observed at the top of the atmosphere, tiny little um, pieces of cometary debris were believed to, over millions and millions of years, delivered water uh, to the Earth. That idea um, is still around, but since we've been in studying the mantle, the Earth's mantle, the layer between the core and the crust, it's been determined that the volume of water that's trapped in mantle rocks could provide the Earth with over 200 times the amount of water that we have on the surface. So the mantle could provide all of the water that we see on the surface um, without, without missing a beat. So it's very likely that all of the water vapor that we see coming out of volcanoes today um, was, are responsible for the, uh, the, the hydrological cycle on, on the surface of the Earth. So that would be through the millions of years of volcanic activity, uh, as we saw a a lot of eruptions everywhere throughout Earth, we would have water evaporating and eventually condensing down to liquid water and accumulating over the years. That's right. And we have evidence for liquid water as early as 3.8 billion years ago. That's when we see the first evidence of rocks or particles of rocks settling through water to form sediments. You can't have sedimentary rocks unless you have water. We're going we're gonna to come back to this whenever we discuss more in depth the techniques that are used to know what past states of the oceans were like. For now, I would like to ask a pretty big question that probably popped up in the minds of people uh, quite often, and they probably never got the answer. But how did oceans become salty? Were they salty at first, and did sediments accumulate over the years? Was it was there a critical event that made this happen? How did it happen? So the reason the ocean has salt in it is because we have a polar molecule at that's in liquid form at the surface of the planet. And that polar molecule is water. Um, water has a slightly negative charge on the uh, side of the molecule that has oxygen and it has a slightly positive charge on the side of the molecule that has the hydrogen. And as a result, water acts like tiny little magnets when um, it runs over a mineral. Um, all minerals are considered salts in that they have positive and negative ions. So water is very, very good at pulling apart the building blocks that make up our continental crust. 
So I think it's very likely that the earliest oceans were uh, had had some level of salinity. Whether it was higher than today um, probably depends on the temperature of the early Earth, because of course warm water can hold more uh, material in solution. So it's possible that the earliest oceans were more salty. Again, there's no way that I can think that we can actually verify this. But I can say that for um, the last 100 million years, we have pretty good evidence that the major constituents dissolved in the oceans, things like sodium and chlorine and calcium and potassium, all of those major ions have been in roughly the same proportion to one another. And we have this information from salt deposits that are left behind after places like the Mediterranean Ocean dried up. The Mediterranean Ocean was cut off from the Atlantic Ocean about 5 million years ago, and all of the water evaporated, leaving behind these thick deposits of salt. And we've drilled through those deposits of salt, and there are tiny little inclusions of ancient seawater. So the, the chemical composition of the ocean seems to be fairly constant through time. And it's probably because the salinity is a function of the chemical properties of water. I think this is a perfect time to dive into the research techniques. Uh, you mentioned drilling through the ground to get rock samples. So can you describe to us what some of the geological markers that you use in the rock samples and how you deduct evidence from those? Well, sure. So we've been, as a scientific community, we've been drilling holes in the seafloor only since about the 19, the mid 1960s. Uh, before that, um, we didn't really have the technology or the engineering ability to drill in the deep ocean. So most of what we knew about the seafloor came from rock, from oceanic rocks that had been um, thrust up on land. In the 1960s, as you might know, the world was dominated by Uh, two global superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. And you've probably heard of the race to space uh, in the 1960s, but there was also a race to the bottom of the ocean. Both the uh, Soviet Union and the United States had programs to try to drill through the oceanic crust um, to reach what to reach the what's called the MOHO. So the, the technology to drill in the ocean basins is actually a result of a um, undercover CIA operation towards the end of the 1960s to recover a Soviet submarine that had sunk in the Pacific Ocean. And I won't go into the details. There's a, a wonderful documentary called Raising of the Azorian that um, you can have your, your listeners watch. But the technology to get to the bottom of the ocean in something like five kilometers of water didn't exist until the CIA decided they wanted to go after this, this Soviet submarine that had sunk. So that project took place between 1968 and 1973. In 1973, the sister ship to the Glomar Explorer called the Glomar Challenger was commissioned by the National Science Foundation and started drilling as part of the deep sea drilling project. And the technology that was used was the same 
uh, technology that was used to recover this Soviet submarine. So you'll see there's a pattern here that interest in scientific research in the oceans has always been driven by economic, military, or um, commercial ventures. So we've been drilling holes in the, um, the seafloor since about um, the early 70s. Um, and the reason that I use seafloor sediments for my research is because unlike sediments on land, the deposition of seafloor sediments is relatively continuous and uninterrupted. There's no thunderstorms that can blow sediment away and cause erosion down at the bottom of the ocean. Um, there are some things like turbidity currents that can cause erosion, but if you go out into the abyssal plains where there's not a lot of activity, that's where you can find the most continuous uh, records of Earth history. So you go out with a, um, with a drill ship, and that drill ship has to have the ability to stay in the same place over the seafloor. And it does that by taking um, um, readings from a satellite and orienting the thrusters of the ship in the opposite direction of the current so the ship can stay over the same position on the seafloor. And then it lowers a drill string that's 5,000 meters long through the water column to get down to the ocean, to the, get down to the seafloor. And then um, while the ship is staying in the same place for a few days, it will then drill a couple hundred meters into the sediment at the bottom of the ocean. So now I'm actually very curious. How do you drill a hole that's a couple of hundred meters deep inside uh, the seafloor? Because the goal here is to get a, a continuous kind of tube, I imagine, straight out of the seafloor so that you can have a continuous reading on the composition of the seafloor that accumulated to the bottom of the ocean over the years? That's right. And it's, it's a really great question. Um, and the solution to how to get this continuous record, this continuous core, um, is very simple. You drill nine meters at a time. Uh, nine meters seems to be this magic number when, you're, when you have a, um, a coring device that shoots a, um, it's, it's a, it's a piston coring device. So you, you build up pressure behind a piston and there's a, a shear strength and that allows a coring tube to fire vertically down into the sediment. And the, the stroke length works out to be about nine meters before the, the tube, um, the coring tube stops just because of friction. So we core into the sediment about nine meters at a time. Um, and then that nine meter length core is pulled back up to the, to the deck of the ship. It, in 5,000 meters of water, it takes about an hour to retrieve that nine meters of core. Then while the scientists take that core and start to study it, the drill, the drill team will lower the coring unit back down to the seafloor It'll re-enter the hole that was previously drilled, and they'll take another nine-meter shot. Now, there's always the chance that in between the first core, the first nine-meter core, and the second nine-meter core, there will be a little bit of drilling disturbance. That almost always happens. About fifty centimeters of your core will be disturbed because of pulling the coring unit out and then putting the coring unit back in. So the way we um, overcome this problem 
is we usually drill two holes. The first hole we call hole A, and we drill down until we're satisfied that we've collected all the sediment that we want. And then we'll move over that will allow the ship to drift maybe 20 meters away from hole A, and we'll start drilling hole B. And we'll make sure that the cores in hole B overlap the core breaks in hole A. So you can get a continuous record if you jump back and forth between the two holes. So you try to have them at exact opposite intervals so that at the end you can have, with two drills, a complete record without any interruptions, making sure that you have an undisturbed record. That's exactly right. And sometimes it takes three holes. Very rarely it takes four holes. That's a wonderful insight on how to get these records. Um, my next question is, whenever you go out to sea to drill for a specific records, say you want to look at past oxygen contents into, into the ocean, and you can find that into the records in the rocks, how do you pick your geological markers? Sure. So... If you look around the earth today, you'll see that in response to things like evaporation and precipitation, there are chemical and physical changes that happen to certain elements. For example, if you take a pool full of water, uh, that water is going to be made up of hydrogen and oxygen atoms. But each one of those atoms has different masses, and we call those isotopes. So to keep things simple, I'll just talk about oxygen isotopes, and I'm going to talk about two of those isotopes. One is the light isotope that's easier to evaporate, and that's oxygen 16. It has a mass of 16. It has eight protons and eight neutrons. There's a heavier isotope of oxygen. It's a lot more rare but it has um, a mass of 18, meaning it has 10 neutrons and eight protons. Oxygen always has eight protons, but the number of neutrons makes for different masses of different isotopes. So if you have a pool of water and you subject that pool of water to evaporation, and let's say you remove half of the water from the, um, from the pool, and you collect the water that evaporated and then recondense it, you'll find that there's a difference in the isotopic composition in the percentage of the heavy isotope of oxygen to the light isotope of oxygen in that vapor versus what's left behind in the pool. What's left behind in the pool is going to be isotopically heavy because the light isotope of oxygen was preferentially evaporated. This is a very simple example that I use in a lot of my classes. When climate is very cold and large ice sheets form, the ice that is in the polar regions is isotopically lighter than the oceans. Today, uh, Antarctica and Greenland are made up of ice that was condensed from water vapor that was evaporated off the oceans. And that ice has a very, very different isotopic composition than the oceans. So what we can do is we can use this information and we can look back through time. There are microorganisms um, that make their shells out of calcium carbonate. And that calcium carbonate is precipitated using oxygen from seawater. 
So the seashells that we find in our core have an isotopic composition that varies through time, and that can tell us something about the volume of ice that was present on the surface of Earth at a given time. And that's just one very simple example of how you can use what we call a tracer, right? This is, called, this is a geochemical tracer, uh, oxygen isotopes as a tracer of ice volume on the surface of Earth. That was a wonderful metaphor to um, explain how we can trace back into history and look at that. But that brings me to another question, which is you can drill through rocks and see what past compositions were. But how can we look back at ancient dynamics, such as ocean currents or atmosphere? Because this seems like it would leave no trace behind. That's That's right. It does seem like it would, there would leave no trace behind. Um, but again, you have to think about what the effect of a process like ocean circulation is going to leave behind on materials that you would find in a sediment core. In terms of ocean circulation, I can use a, um, I can use a very simple example that we, that we see today. So today, our ocean circulation between the deep ocean and the surface ocean takes about 1,500 years to make a complete circuit from the North Atlantic, where cold and salty water um, is formed through evaporation. Um, and that water sinks to the bottom of the ocean. It travels all through the ocean basins, and it upwells um, along the coasts of the continents, and it upwells around the Southern Ocean. And when I say upwells, I mean that deep water loses its It's high density through mixing, and it comes back up to the surface. And that process takes about 1,500 years for one complete mixing of the ocean. So you can think about, if you look at deep water throughout the oceans, deep water will have a different amount of time that it's been separated from the atmosphere, okay? So in the North Atlantic, deep water has been in contact with the atmosphere more recently than let's say water in the Southern Ocean, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we use this information then to understand how, um, how there would be a geochemical signature of this? And it actually is, it's a very simple solution. All over the ocean, you have photosynthesis going on in the surface. And the product of that photosynthesis, uh, CO2 plus water in the presence of light and nutrients, produces carbohydrates right? So those carbohydrates are at the surface of the ocean. That's where they're produced. And ultimately, after the life cycle of the organism is finished, that organic matter, right, that uh, carbohydrate will begin settling through the water column. And ultimately, that will get, that organic matter will get recycled back into carbon dioxide uh, and water. So in the North Atlantic, you have sinking organic matter, that's being regenerated into carbon dioxide, but it hasn't had a, a, as much time to accumulate carbon dioxide as let's say the Southern Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. So you can look throughout the ocean basins today and you can see that there is an increase in the concentration of carbon dioxide as water masses get older. And when I say water masses being old or water masses being young, I'm talking about how long those water masses have been separated from the atmosphere. 
So in addition to CO2 increasing along the flow path of deep water, the isotopes of carbon, of course, there's different isotopes of carbon. All carbon has 12 protons, but some carbon has six neutrons, some carbon has seven neutrons, some carbon has eight neutrons. Um, Photosynthesis prefers to use carbon atoms that are easier to pass through a cell membrane. So that would be the lighter isotope of carbon. So as carbon dioxide is being um, released back into the deep waters, that carbon dioxide is isotopically tagged with lighter carbon. So we call this the um, delta C13 value. Uh, When you have a negative um, or a lower delta C13 value, that indicates more uh, respiration of organic material, respiration being the opposite of photosynthesis. So that's what we can look at to reconstruct ocean circulation patterns. We can take cores from different parts of the world and compare the carbon isotopic signatures of the seashells and determine if there was an older or a younger water mass. And that helps us reconstruct ocean circulation. So the key is to have some rock samples or geological records that spend the same dates at various locations throughout the world and then building patterns between those records. As beautifully said, and um, it's no small feat to correlate units of equal time between different sediment cores. So that's a whole field of study in itself is keeping track of time and correlating equal rock units between the, let's say, a core, a sediment core in the Pacific Ocean and a sediment core in the Atlantic Ocean. Fortunately, the Earth has given us a really beautiful way of keeping track of geological time because the Earth's magnetic field uh, reverses its polarity at a non-regular rate. So there's a unique pattern of magnetic reversals for a given period of geologic time. And you can use that pattern to correlate between uh, sediment cores, but also uh, the seafloor is magnetized as well. So we have a very good idea of um, how time progresses through a sample of sediment just by looking at the magnetics. Let's dive into some of your uh, more specific work that you've studied over the past years. Uh, And let's start with uh, climate shifts. You study the role of ocean in climate shifts, and these have occurred about 25 times in the past 100,000 years. Can you tell us what these climate shifts are and what what they are triggered by? So let's, um, let's make sure we're clear about what we're talking about. So in the last 100,000 years, the Earth has moved from um, a climate state that's very similar to what we're experiencing now, um, where CO2 is relatively high, and as a result, climate is relatively warm, um, and sea level is um, relatively high. Now, In between about 100, or really it's 120,000 years ago, and the present, Earth went through what's called a glacial period, where as a result of very small changes in the amount of sunlight that Earth gets, and also the distribution of where that sunlight is hitting the surface of the Earth, um, 
what I mean by the distribution of sunlight is how much sunlight is being received at high latitudes versus low latitudes. And that has to do with the tilt of the earth. The earth's tilt changes um, on a 40,000 year timescale. And it's largely due to the tug of war that um, Jupiter and the sun are playing with the, um, with the planets of our solar system. Um, the gravitational effects of Jupiter um, are large enough to pull our orbital configuration out of alignment a little bit. And so as those orbital configurations change and the amount of sunlight received at high latitudes changes, um, Earth can go through a cold cycle, which we call a glacial. And for a glacial period to happen, what you really need um, are periods of time where the summer months are cool enough for winter snowfall to persist throughout the year. And I'll, I'll say that again in a different way. It's not, it's not that the earth needs to have very cold winters in order for an ice sheet to form. Really for an ice sheet to form, you need to have mild summers, right? Because if you have mild summers at high latitude, that will allow winter snowfall to remain throughout the year and then slowly build up an ice sheet. So between 125,000 years ago and today, Earth went through what's called a glacial cycle. And that glacial cycle ended about 18,000 years ago, um, which allowed uh, modern humans to develop agriculture. So that was one, one glaciation, one, one glacial cycle. So there are 80 of these glacial cycles in the last 3 million years. Um, and each one of these glacial cycles is accompanied by a change in carbon dioxide, a change in the volume of ice that's in the polar ice caps, and a change in sea level. Um, and these changes over the last 3 million years are directly attributable to these changes in the orbital configuration of the planet. And it seems like there also is some processes on Earth that can impact um, the triggering of these climate shifts. I was digging pretty deep into the paper that was the object of your uh, doctorate thesis, which is the opening of the Drake Passage. And uh -huh. for people who don't know, the Drake Passage is the opening between South America and Antarctica that used to be one whole piece of land and split apart at some point. And that is combined with the onset of the Antarctic circumpolar current. That is the ocean current that flows clockwise around Antarctica. And that, that's the only un uninterrupted current. And it has the most uh, volume transport out of all currents in the ocean. So I'd really like for you to talk about this topic and how these two critical events also arguably onset uh, another climate shift in glaciation period. Sure. So the glaciation period that you're talking about is a longer term shift. The Antarctic continent, we have pretty good evidence that the Antarctic continent was host to a temperate rainforest um, in the Eocene which is a period of time between uh, about 55 and 34 million years ago. After the Eocene, an ice sheet formed on Antarctica very suddenly. And it's always been a mystery as to why Antarctica 
would have gone from a temperate climate to a frigid, uh, frozen landscape. Um, and at first, geologists thought, well, perhaps Antarctica drifted from a low latitude position into a high latitude position. And this is a great uh, theory, but the problem is Antarctica has been in a polar position for 100 million years. So I'd like you to think about that for a moment because Antarctica had a temperate rainforest when it was in a latitude where it would have been dark for six months out of the year. So that's a very strange, it's a very strange thing to try to think about because we don't have any, an, any analogs in our modern climate system to what that would look like. But you have to try and imagine a temperate rainforest at a latitude where it's dark for six months out of the year. So the question remained, why all of a sudden, 34 million years ago, did Antarctica become um, glaciated? Uh, and one of, the, one of the answers seemed to come from this ocean current that you mentioned called the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. Uh, if you look at the ocean today, if you look at a globe, the only place where you could trace your finger all the way around the globe without having to lift it up to go over a continent is in the Southern Ocean, right? We call this an infinite pathway for seawater. And because this pathway happens to line up with the westerly winds of the Southern Hemisphere, the current that flows at that latitude band is extremely strong. One of the um, results of having an uninterrupted pathway for seawater is that you can't have a current like the Gulf Stream, for example. The Gulf Stream is what's called a western boundary current. It's a geostrophic current, which means that there's a balance between the Coriolis force and the pressure gradient force. In the Southern Ocean, there is no pressure gradient force because there's no continental boundary. And as a result, you can't have geostrophic flow, which means that you can't have a current like the Gulf Stream, right? in the Southern Hemisphere. The Gulf Stream, of course, is what keeps the Northern uh, Hemisphere, particularly places like um, Northern Europe, um, relatively warm, right? If you look at a map of the, if you look at a map of the Northern Hemisphere and you trace your finger between Ireland and Labrador, Canada, you'll see that they're at the same latitude. But the climate between Ireland and Labrador, Canada is very, very different and that's because of all the heat that is brought up by the Gulf Stream. So take that example now to the Southern Ocean. The Southern Ocean can't support any currents like the Gulf Stream. So it made sense that the Southern Ocean evolved from something that would have supported geostrophic warm water currents like the Gulf Stream into the Southern Ocean that we see today. Um, and the requirement for that would be that at some point in the past, Drake Passage would have opened and the Tasmanian Gateway would have opened. And those, those are the, re the responses of very slow processes that cause the continents to drift relative to one another. What is the Tasmanian Gateway? The Tasmanian Gateway is very similar uh, oceanographically to Drake Passage. It's a narrow gateway, or it was a narrow gateway, now it's quite wide. But it was a narrow gateway that separated um, the southern portion of Australia 
from what's called the Wilkesland coast of Antarctica. Okay. So those two gateways, the Drake Passage, which separates the Pacific from the Atlantic, and the Tasmanian Gateway, which separates the Indian from the Pacific, were believed to be very critical for the evolution of global climate. Because once those gateways opened and the Antarctic Circumpolar Current became a possibility, um, it was believed that that's what caused glaciation of Antarctica. And that was the that was the topic of my thesis, was looking at oceanic tracers of ocean circulation to try and figure out when the first time the geochemical signature of Pacific seawater showed up in the South Atlantic. So we can look at the fossil fish teeth in a core from the Atlantic Ocean, and we can see that around 41 million years ago, the isotopic composition of fish teeth shifts towards the Pacific, um, the Pacific value. And that was a very good indication that around 41 million years ago was the first time that Pacific seawater entered the Atlantic Ocean through Drake Passage. That is a beautiful insight. And you mentioned in your papers that the onset of this Antarctic circumpolar current uh, from the opening of Drake Passage had a huge impact on the carbon dioxide levels throughout pretty much the entire planet. So how, how did that contribute to the CO2 levels that, that we saw at the time? Well, it's in that paper, it's, it's largely speculative. But if you think about the Southern Ocean as being a continuous pathway for seawater, one of the things that happens in the Southern Ocean because of that dynamic is that there's a massive amount of upwelling of deep water, right? And remember that deep water I was talking about earlier is loaded with carbon dioxide, right? Because of all of the respired organic carbon. One of the other things that deep water is completely loaded with are the nutrients that were taken up during photosynthesis. So when deep water comes back up to the surface, it's like a fertilizer for the surface of the ocean, right? Deep water coming back up to the surface creates uh, conditions where photosynthesis can take place. So it's a very interesting uh, part of the carbon cycle. But once Drake Passage and Tasmanian Gateway were open, what I speculated in that about in that paper is that the circulation dynamics enabled that upwelling process to occur. And as photosynthesis became a major process in the Southern Ocean, that would draw down carbon dioxide uh, through the biological pump. Which would in turn decrease the greenhouse effect from carbon dioxide and induce the cooling that may have started the glaciation period. That's right. That's what we call a positive feedback. It was a change that amplified the initial change. To end on a topic that relates more to today uh, and talking about climate shifts, what can we learn about the studying of ancient oceans to apply it to today, for example, to global warming? Would that be considered a climate shift as well? I think what we, we can learn about the study of past climate is that there is no um, stable, there, there's no such thing as a stable climate on, on Earth. Climate is always changing and it always has changed. What I, what I talk about are these cascades of climate feedbacks, 
right? So the reason that Earth moves between glacial and interglacial um, climate states originates with a change in Earth's orbital parameters. But the reason that Earth's climate changes has to do with the feedbacks that are initiated because of that. The ocean circulation changes and carbon dioxide from the deep ocean is released into the atmosphere. So there are all these different climate feedbacks that come into play when you're talking about glacial, interglacial uh, climate change. And in terms of future climate change, we don't know what these feedbacks are going to look like. And as a result, it's very difficult to incorporate those into climate models. Well, to end on a more personal note, I'd really like for you to share with us why you find paleoceanography such an interesting field to study and what some of your personal goals or objectives in your research careers might be. So my uh, the reason I'm interested in studying the past ocean uh, is because when you think about global climate, most of the heat in the Earth's climate system is being stored and transported by the oceans. So if you can work out what the ocean was doing in the past, you've gone a long way towards understanding what was controlling ancient climate. Now, personally, the reason I'm, I'm interested in climate change dates back to when I was about your age. When I was a freshman in college, um, I saw a flyer on a notice board calling for uh, volunteers to go on a high latitude expedition to the Arctic to collect uh, rock samples for a geophysical survey. And um, I asked the professor if I could go. He said, how'd you do in geology? I said, I got an A. Um, he asked me how many rocks I could carry. I said, I can carry a lot of rocks. So he decided to take me with him. His name is John Tarduno. I'm still in, I'm still in uh, touch with him. He's a good friend of mine. And about two or three weeks into the expedition, we stumbled across a bed of fossil-bearing strata uh, that was about 90 million years old. And we were very surprised when we started excavating this, this, um, this unit because we started finding things like the fossils of bony fish. And then we started finding turtle shells. And then we found a, a large femur. And we didn't have the ability to identify the species that these um, bones came from when we were in the field. But once we got back to the lab and somebody took a look at them, they told us that they were from what's called a champsosaur, which is a fossil crocodilian, and that this particular species of champsosaur couldn't have survived unless the mean annual temperature was above about 15 degrees Celsius. So that to me was very interesting because it suggested that the field area that I had been freezing in was temperate to subtropical 90 million years ago. And so we had two hypotheses for why this would be. One was that the landmass had been in a tropical latitude and plate tectonics had carried it to a polar latitude. We discarded that hypothesis very quickly because of the geophysical work we did gave us the latitude that the rocks had formed in. The rocks formed at a latitude of 75 degrees north, which means 90 million years ago, 
the latitude 75 degrees north had crocodiles living there. And that to me was phenomenally interesting. And ever since I've been trying to figure out why the poles were so warm. And it's a combination of ocean circulation and high CO2 values. But really, what I'm really interested in personally, getting back to the, what I talked about earlier, is what it would look like to have a temperate rainforest with crocodiles roaming around when it was dark six months out of the year. It's just, it's just a vision that I, um, I love to think about and sharing that, you know, that line of inquiry with students uh, is something that I really, really enjoy. That is a pretty mind-blowing thing to imagine it. And I really appreciate your time to, to share this with us. This was very interesting and I was super excited for this episode, learned a lot, and I hope people um, will do the same. So thank you so much and I hope everything goes well in your studies. Good luck for that. Thanks very much and thanks for the opportunity to talk about my work and best of luck to the Blue Dot Podcast. I think this is a great idea. Thank you so much. I appreciate the kind words. All right. Bye.